But this is the amazing kind of uh, paradox of sport is that we're, we're all just playing games here, right? They're just, they're meaningless games that we've, we've made up the rules and then decided, uh, let's see who's best at this arbitrary game. But actually those people who are really good at these arbitrary games have incredible influence on society. I mean, they are some of the greatest role models that we have and most well-known. And um, there, was a, there was a survey of reputations of global leaders and Roger Federer came second back a little while ago, second to Nelson Mandela in terms of how it, it kind of the, how trustworthy he was, how much integrity he had. I mean, this, this is also kind of part of our approach is that to recognize their athletes have an incredible kind of power in society and using their platform then is a responsibility using that platform positively so yeah you're right it, the thing you're doing is arbitrary but actually it has real impact in the world and we need to we need to harness that Hello there to you, it's Steve Ingham here and thank you for listening to the Supporting Champions podcast, whether it's the first time or if you're a regular. Now I've spent my career and I'm fascinated by the process of supporting other people in the pursuit of performance, whether that's in sports, business, arts, exploration. And it's my real hope that the conversations that we have in the podcast with performers, coaches, researchers can help you wonder, think differently, maybe cope a little bit better and maybe nudge you along too. This week's guest is Lawrence Halstead. Now, Lawrence is a former Olympic fencer, having competed at the London and Rio Olympics. And Lawrence retired after the Rio Olympics and is currently Performance Director of Danish Fencing. Since retiring as an athlete, Lawrence has been supporting athletes in what I would call a bold new way of supporting the whole athlete through holistic thinking, mentoring, developing self-awareness, care and mental health. And he's done this work with a company called The True Athlete Project. He's just published a book by the same title, which lays out in a very clear, logical, inspiring and practical way why we need to think differently. And so he challenges the current win-at-all-cost culture of elite sport. He persuades athletes to think more deeply about the meaning and value of sport and help athletes achieve more of their athletic potential and give athletes a foundation for an enhanced well-being as they go through their sporting career. This was a fascinating conversation with Lawrence and very much a part of similar conversations that I've had with Duff Gibson and Kath Bishop and has real substance behind the campaign for us to find a better way. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Now, um, now for Lawrence, for those who don't already know you, uh, for those who aren't Olympic fencing fans, um, can you just give us a bit of a, your background? Just just introduce yourself for us. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm British. I uh, grew up in London and I'm, uh, I was in the, the British fencing teams from the age of, kind of 18 all the way up. Uh, we had an opportunity to become full-time when we won the bid for the London Olympics. So graduated, that was the year I graduated. So incredibly lucky timing. I just took up the option of a full-time fencing contract. We'd never had that option in the, in the UK before. Uh, and trained to, to that Olympics and then qualified also for Rio um, in 2016. And I retired after, after Rio. I'd actually moved to Denmark in between those two Olympics. 
and took up a role as the performance director of the Danish Fencing Federation. And I've been in that role and alongside the other, the other stuff that we're going to talk about with the Triathlete Project since 2016. Very potted history. Yeah, and you um, you come from fencing, a fencing family, I, I understand. Yeah, both my mum and dad were also Olympic fences. My mum in Munich and Montreal and my dad in Mexico, 68. Um, yeah, so I was born into a fencing family surrounded by Olympic memorabilia all around our house and a shrine to fencing. Um, and my, actually, I have an older brother and sister and... And people always ask me, so you 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 have, you were destined to be a fencer, right? And I said, well, actually, my old my brother and sister never really took to it, and they didn't. They said, and you're the youngest, so your older brother and sister didn't take to it, so you really had to be a fencer then. <laughs> I thought, yeah, actually, maybe maybe that's the right way around. I did have to, but uh, yeah, I didn't feel I didn't feel anything other than support. Actually, it wasn't it wasn't anything that I felt like pressure. So. Um... Fencing is one of those sports that probably doesn't fit into the mainstream, but it, but it, it spikes in its interest around the Olympics to the point where I'm, I've suddenly got to try and make get a grasp of the rules and the nuances, and I'm highly dependent upon the commentary uh, to know what was going on because it's just it's just so so fast in in that sense uh, for for somebody to appreciate it. I'm almost assuming you have to have a level of of either a coaching eye or understanding of the sport. Yeah, that, that is one of the one of the points about fencing that it it is quite complicated to see for the first time. But it, because it is really the best sport in the world, it's such an incredible thing to to do and to watch. But um, and the, I think the the reason why it's so kind of it does get people's attention when the Olympics comes around is it looks amazing. You kind of, you have this incredible venue and these, and it is with swords and kind of the lighting looks pretty special. There's an amazing amount of emotion around the fencing match, which you don't see in a lot of sport. I mean, some sports are, lots of sports are emotional, but in fencing, it's almost every action you get screams and tears and like really wear your emotions on your sleeves in fencing. Um, but yeah, there is this element that even the referees struggle to understand the, the, the action sometimes and the coaches disagree and the fences disagree about what's happened. So how's somebody who's watching it for the first time really going to understand it? Um, in Epe, there's three weapons. Epe is a bit simpler. So there and there, it's just the first person to hit and the light comes up. That's the point. But the other two weapons, there's, there's issues with right of way and who has the right to hit at any point. So yeah, it's, just, it's the, the one thing that we kind of have to figure out because more people need to know and, experience fencing really it's it's a wonderful sport okay maybe maybe if we meet up at some point you you can give me a bit of a lesson or a maybe not too much of a lesson <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's a bit like diving to a to a certain extent where i'm highly dependent on leon taylor d- decoding what happened because it's over in a flash of yeah. he can see it he can interpret it and um yeah but but equally it is enthralling in that sense. You get drawn right in when it's on, when it's exposed. Um, yeah, that, that's also the beauty of the Olympics is that all those sports that you, you never usually watch and then turn it on one morning as we were in Tokyo and listen to 15 minutes of the commentator giving you a little bit of insight and suddenly you're 
you're desperately concerned about these these archers and this uh, wheelchair basketball team or like, whatever it is. It's, it's it's what's so special about the Olympics, I think. And and so relatively quickly after retiring, you've taken up a role as performance director of the Danish team. Was that always in your blood to coach or direct or support others to to develop? Well, actually, I, I kind of knew from the beginning that I didn't want to be a coach. So I I didn't go down that direction of, kind of getting qualifications. But but I certainly loved, loved the idea of performance sport. And I... I, I actually I wasn't quite so sure what I was going to be doing until I got this opportunity. Another kind of lucky role that I had, this, this job came up just as I was retiring from, from my own career. And after I, I I took it kind of happily, and then after I took it, I realised just how how wonderful it was as a job. I mean, the performance director role, you you get to have a lot of those kind of supportive conversations around. I mean, I knew the sport as well, so I could do some of the technical tactical conversations, but this kind of whole person just dealing with the, the athlete in front of you and helping them work out their, their planning, their life situation, competition schedules, just everything's on the table as a performance director. And you're working with coaches and you're planning training camps. So I really had this, just this whole overview of the system that I could think of. Yeah, I could think of what what would I love to be a part of as, as an athlete? What kind of training camp would I love to turn up to? What kind of vibe would I like to... To, to see in the national squad, for example. And then I had some autonomy to be able to, to put it into action. So it's been an amazing, amazing journey kind of, and an opportunity, really. Can I, can I assume from what you're saying there that it, um, that how your experience in British fencing, uh, it, it didn't have too many holes in it, but what you're looking to try and do is just create a, a positive, facilitative environment for athletes to thrive you're almost looking around you and, and thinking well this is what i experienced we, this was good this was perhaps missing and trying to create that for the danish team yeah absolutely i mean you always take your past experiences and, and well hopefully learn from them and, and and figure out what you want to take forward and and leave behind um i i also had a, i mean we had a very different kind of situation financially and the world of fencing in Denmark is very different to the UK, so it was going to be very different. I had very little kind of cash to spend, very little power. No, I didn't have anybody working for me necessarily. I just had to collaborate with our national coaches, and um, so so I naturally had to kind of take on a flatter hierarchy, kind of flatter, flatter hierarchy of the organisation, and and then I just brought my own philosophy into it of um, that this should be about athletes thriving in in the sport and just loving what they're doing rather than it all being about how quickly we can get medals. And luckily the, I had the support of the organization of the board who hired me. That, I mean, again, we didn't have a long history of, kind of Olympic fences and medal winners in, in Danish fencing. So there wasn't an expectation when I came in that we were just going to win straight away. Um, we got some wonderful and historic results along the way, but, but really, it was there was just a huge support for for me to bring this philosophy in, um, that idea of creating creating an environment that people wanted to be a part of. That that ties up very well with the Danish system, with the Danish kind of mentality. Okay, that, so I was just going to ask about what was that conversation like in terms of 
putting forward the argument about the the goal about athletes thriving and going on to greater things beyond their sport, perhaps as much as whether they bring a piece of metal home from a competition. Um, that was that was already you're already pushing on an open door there in Denmark, were you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a highly amateur kind of setup here. There are no professionals in it. There's, there are a few coaches who earn their living here, and fencing from it. But um, yeah, it was. I've actually I've had these conversations with some some quite non traditional kind of ideas around performance sport and and this this philosophy. But when I've talked to some other other coaches they've they've always looked kind of asked me like is that okay in fencing they always think of fencing as being very traditional very conservative and actually when i've kind of brought in the the, the coaches or the board of the federation they just could not have been more supportive of it i mean they, they, at not one point have i have i heard somebody kind of grumble and say shouldn't we just be kind of working a bit harder or shouldn't we just be focusing a bit more on on winning there's just there's none of that but it, it is, like I said, it was grounded in the Danish mentality. They have a very strong club system here. So Danish performance sport, actually, they they outperform their, their size on the on the Olympic level and the kind of top level. They, they do get some pretty fantastic results, but it's based on, an, on a very strong kind of club community, a community club network. And so every athlete comes through their, their local club and whatever sport it is, kind of staffed by volunteers, um, those clubs tend to be able to take their athlete pretty far, almost right up until senior elite level. And in some sports, then they might go into a central uh, a central training centre. But even most most sports still they'll 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 be retained in their clubs all the way through their careers. So Olympic medal winners who are still in their in their club that they started in, for example. And and how important was that for you in terms of your decision to take the the role? Um, if you were offered a performance director role, perhaps where it was aligned to outcome results, medals per amount of money invested, et cetera. Um, Would that have been for you? I don't think I, if I'd taken it, I don't think I would have stayed there very long. I just don't think it would have motivated me. And it, I, from everything I hear from people in those environments, it just kind of burns you out very quickly. It kind of eats you up in the inside, especially if it's, against what you actually believe in the, st- in the first place. So um, I haven't experienced it, but I, I can, I know very clearly now that it would be so antithetical to what I, what I believe that I, I just don't think I would have stuck around very long. And, and what are you doing in this space? Because so my, my question is oriented to um, those Olympic programs that I've, I've worked with or alongside or advised and, and Paralympic programs they sit down the Monday after the competition closes, the big competition, and they say, forget all of that. Um, we're now aiming for three medals in four years' time or three years' time as it will be. Um, what are you doing post-games in that period of time? Of the, the, There's the big opportunity to qualify and, and perform, but afterwards, in a, in a broader way of thinking... How are you debriefing and working with athletes? Well, we do the same kind of setup for those athletes who are at the aiming to be at the Olympic level. We didn't qualify anyone for Tokyo, so we didn't have that kind of decompression 
period. So actually, when it when it turned out that we we weren't qualified for Tokyo, we already started kind of spring, early summer. We'd started kind of preparing for the next the next three years, and it it started with with meetings with the athletes, kind of figuring out what their what their ambitions were, and getting that clear, and and then laying out a kind of a, a plan of action for how we were going to try and get there. I mean, there's it's a it's a big mountain to climb from Denmark with completely. Of amateur athletes and all the all our competitors and even in fencing are all professionals so every pretty much every fencer who qualifies for an olympics from europe will be will be professional so we have to do some pretty special things as a as a sport as a federation here if we're going to compete with that creative things innovative things um and i'm not just thinking we've got to work harder than our opponents in fact i don't don't think we do i think we have to work smarter and more creatively. So exploring some of those things. One example of that is I, I think this this idea of a psychologically kind of informed environment and a and psychological safety in a group to build the most powerful team dynamic that we can within a group is one of the ways that we could kind of one of the performance advantages we could gain over our competitors. If if the group themselves are just absolutely flying as kind of their dynamic is flying and 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 flourishing, then that's the kind of thing that could could kind of close that gap a little bit. Mm. So we've sort of hinted to the the underpinning approach and thinking about doing performance differently, or perhaps in a, an enriched way, um, not just about the summit, the the journey in itself, and and looking after the participants. Uh, who are climbing? Um, tell me a little bit about the the background and thinking behind the book, the becoming a true athlete. Yeah, so it, this this stems from the work. The, the book is basically a description of the philosophy, the approach of the true athlete project that I've been involved in since 2016, since I retired from fencing, and um, back then, even kind of. Soon after I got involved in the in the organisation, I was discussing with Sam, our CEO, this kind of how great it would be to have a just a small manifesto of our approach because we we noticed how non traditional it was, how it was a bit kind of yeah anti culture, anti cultural within within sport. So we were thinking about it as a man, manifesto, and then basically that that was the the seed that grew into this book eventually as I started writing it last summer under under lockdown when all competitions and training camps were cancelled um, and it grew into something a bit a bit bigger and aimed at athletes and kind of it really is a full description of, of everything we stand for and um, with some background information about why it's so important that we need to we need to change the culture of sport and check the culture of athlete development so so that's the that's the, the background of the book so you hinted at the the conditions that you're trying to maybe first offset, shift, move forward, and you you mentioned at the beginning of the book around the burning platform. I got the right, yeah, the burning platform mm-hmm. for drastic change in sport. Is that what you're sensing and seeing um, when when you encounter the athletes through the True Athlete Project or or in programs around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I I am seeing. We are seeing it. Um, what we're seeing, I think, the kind of the underlying foundation. Those are 
these kind of the issues that we see arising, athlete mental health issues, burnout, dropout, um, they they seem to be symptoms of an underlying kind of the found the, the cracks in the foundation, which are around the our the cultural the, the kind of cultural acceptance of values in sport, what why we're doing sport and what the meaning of it is, and where. I think where our philosophy of why we're doing of the value of sport is is weak and it's leading to toxic cultures, performance cultures, um, non-prioritization of sport or coach training or teacher training, which leads to really bad experiences of sport. It just leads to these kind of lots of lots of these kind of aspects of uh, adverse aspects of sport, which then end up with athletes who are burnt out and suffering from depression and anxiety and um, even the, the most successful athletes. And that's kind of what I try and point out throughout the book is that, yeah, there might be, okay, we've got huge issues with dropout rates of teenagers in sport. That's one thing. That's the experience they're getting of sport at that age. But we also have kind of systems that develop athletes right up to the top level, Olympic world champions who get to the top of the mountain and realize that that was nothing that it was they'd hoped it to be nothing they expected it to be and and actually they can be left bereft and depressed and and this if it's right from the beginning their first experience of sport right up to those who achieve everything that they'd set out to there are deep deep issues there then then we have to look back at the foundational the kind of the foundational approach and what what the issues right down there are that's what this, this book is about really yeah, and, and I remember some early discussions around athlete care, um, performance lifestyle in the British system. And the one phrase that I remember provoked a lot of thinking was, are we happy with debris collection after the games? And that was the, that was the sort of norm that we generally accepted or that was kicking about, that people just sort of left on the scrap heap in the late 90s and 2000s. There was no aftercare um, provided uh, until the sort of advent of athlete career education systems and performance lifestyle, player development, uh, and so on. Um, this, this strikes me as another level deeper in terms of its uh, exploration of, of who you are as a person, first and foremost, um, independent of, of the pursuit. And so I found myself looking through the book and, and registering how applicable this is to, to anybody. Um, if, you're, if you're working in a pharmaceutical company and you attach your identity to being the director of marketing or communications you you say to somebody tell me about yourself and they they lead with their job title as opposed to who they who they are at a deeper level um it strikes me as as making an attempt to to help people discover that yeah it's it's feedback i've had from a few a few angles actually that that they people felt that it's applicable to them just as much completely outside the sport and it's this classic phrase of if you're not if you're not worthy enough without the gold medal then you won't you won't feel worthy enough with it 
Um, and you're exactly right. It's uh, it's that it's trying to get to the heart of that. I mean, but that is also part of the this major crack and at the the heart of sports culture, which is the result focus that everything is about the outcome and the results that people achieve, and that's the only worthwhile thing is the medals. And now we've even gotten to the point this summer where people were saying the only medal that counts is gold. So it's not just medals that count, it's only gold that counts. And I mean, yeah, forget fourth is the worst place, but third is also devastating as well. I mean, it's it's so absurd, but but that really it, it it's it's almost it's gone to this place of absurdity where Piers Morgan can talk about third being such a disappointment that kind of highlights just okay. Maybe we're at the peak of absurdity now of this results-focused approach, and we need to find a different way of going about it. And there are some great examples of what that different way can be. And I write about a few of them in the book, and I think some some sports, especially some some of the Eastern martial arts, they have underlying philosophies which are a very kind of they're very strong and and well well thought through. They they was they were created with foundational philosophies. So we have examples of, of how else it can be done. Yeah, we we sh- shouldn't probably ponder on Piers Morgan as a reference point, but um, but it does, it is an influential voice that that can uh, can inculcate other people to think that way, and and so it's not such a rare voice either. Not such a probably the more traditional approach is every athlete can only be happy with gold, or and and anything else is a slight disappointment. Yeah, or I suppose, or the for the certainly in the UK it's it's highly dependent upon the results on a Saturday or a Wednesday night and the bounce of two or three losses starts to get into a fervor of the manager needs to go as opposed to who are we as a club what do we represent what's the societal impact of of this organization upon our children and our families um the true athlete it's quite a strong statement that is that is that sort of putting a flag down and stating this is we need to redefine what we think about when we're developing athletes. Yeah, and um, I mean the first thing to point out is that there we do we, I include a definition of a true athlete in the book, and it's it's highly kind of idealistic, but it we, it also prefaces that with this idea that that's an impossible kind of goal to achieve. No one is. Is the is everything of a true athlete in that description? But what we what I also point out is the true athlete is anyone aiming in that direction. Anyone who aspires to that is is already a true athlete. And then we're all struggling and all, all failing and kind of inadequate in various ways. So, um, but yeah, it, I mean one of the, one of the kind of founding philosophies of the true athlete project is to reimagine sport as a training ground for for good mental health and well-being and kind of thriving people and to reimagine the athlete as somebody who is a kind of compassionate conscientious member of society um, and indeed that that ties up very well with some of those martial art founding philosophies in fact if you look at if you look at the any martial art that has a founding philosophy which most the asian ones do they always kind of point to the athlete the practitioner the point being to kind of develop yourself in order to give back to society to be a positive influence on society so that has been completely kind of skewed in our current current sport culture to being 
the athlete is just somebody who develops themselves to be superhuman and very rich and and popular and with lots of followers and i mean that's a you can see i mean it's it's a it's a bit of an extreme way of classifying it but you can see just how vacuous that is in comparison to those original kind of philosophies around actually the, the meaning i mean you get no meaning from just winning and having followers and being rich like that that doesn't create any fulfillment whereas developing yourself in order to help your fellow man creates is the the, the surest route to a life of fulfillment and meaning mm. and, and i suppose influence too in the sense that if it is just about putting a ball in the back of a net or poking someone with a epe um at a different speed to somebody else that doesn't really translate you know you've got because these activities we engage in are are generally arbitrary anyway (laughs) but this Uh, is the amazing kind of paradox of sport is that we're we're all just playing games here right they're just they're meaningless games we've made up the rules and then decided let's see who's best at this arbitrary game but Actually, those people who are really good at these arbitrary games have incredible influence on society. I mean, they are some of the greatest role models that we have and most well-known. And um, there, was a, there was a survey of reputations of global leaders and Roger Federer came second back a little while ago, second to Nelson Mandela in terms of how, his, his kind of the, how trustworthy he was, how much integrity he had. I mean, this, this is also kind of part of our approach is that to recognize the athletes have an incredible kind of power in society and using their platform then is a responsibility using that platform positively so yeah you're right the thing you're doing is arbitrary but actually it has real impact in the world and we need to we need to harness that Mm. so on the uh, i'm looking at page 25 um so the elements of uh, a true athlete a true athlete has and there were a number in there that you you read and you you perhaps there's there's um there's a lovely collection of those and perspective self awareness emotional control and and some of those you can naturally go yeah yeah okay i recognize those on a on a similar list or or approach uh, emotional control specifically that in the heat of battle under pressure you're going to you're going to need to do that and um if if things don't go well for you that you're going to need to be able to to bounce back and the one that leapt off the page that I, I, that I, th- I thought about for for days on a dog walk and was was love, mm. and it made me think. Why am I surprised by that? And I think it was the 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 unfamiliarity on that list that it it it, it speaks true to that you need to. They, they, so you, your definition is they have love for themselves and others. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. You've got to, you've got to be okay with yourself at the least, and and it's one of the reflections of listening to people like you on this podcast, is that people reflect that they could have been kinder to themselves, and I hear it time and time again that the emotion after crossing the finish line is relief, um, relief speaking to enormous pressure that they put on themselves internal external expectations but they should have given themselves a little bit more <laughs> space and consideration and love 
Um, could you just build upon that and, and sort of share that, that motive? Because it seems as though that's central to the philosophy. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, and this, You'd love it's, to. It's great. <laughs> it's great that you, you pick this one up because um, it's, it is one that, that kind of sticks out when people first hear about the programs we run. So I, I, for example, I run a, I, I do a workshop for our mentoring program and, and through, through TAP for called Love and Compassion in Performance Sport. And it stemmed from the fact that I personally was one of those athletes who was super hard on themselves and would really beat myself up as a, as a young athlete, kind of really horrifically, and felt that that was good for me, motivational. And then compared that with later on in my career, where I realized the self-compassionate approach was so much more effective for me to get to, just to kind of deal with the anxiety to not suffer to get over it quicker and and even in performance if i made a mistake just to get over it immediately and, and click back onto what i needed to do and so i started down that route of uh, self-compassion seems like the, the far better approach to to performance and to teach our young athletes and then i had i came across this wonderful rowing coach jason dorland if you if you heard of him another friend of, of duff duff who you had on your podcast recently um who had been thinking about this far more than I had and had a kind of whole approach. He built a whole rowing system based on love. And he broke it down into these four areas. So love for your sport. Everyone can understand that. If you're an athlete, you want to get to the top. It's really good to have, to love your sport. Much better to love it more than love it less. Really clear. And then love for yourself. Some people can struggle with that a bit, but actually when you break it down and you understand it, it makes, makes sense very easy. Love for teammates. Yeah, the word love becomes a little bit awkward some suddenly, but but they can get this respect and kind of team building, team bonding, and then love for opponents, which is the one that really people most really struggle with. Um, so he broke it down into these four elements, and that's that really kind of got me excited and, and inspired to dive into each one and figure out well, what what would it mean to to grow your love in each of these areas, and um, and it, it's great because it it does stick out. It's language that we don't traditionally use in sport, except for love your sport. That's, that's fine. Everything else is a bit, is a bit awkward for, for most people, but then, yeah, it, it has such power to it. And the self-compassionate piece, I think, I, I mean, I hear hundreds of podcasts and read all, all every interview I can with athletes. And that question of what, what advice would you want to give your younger self? The thing that comes up most often, I think, is just be a bit kinder to yourself. Mm. Just don't, don't, don't suffer the losses. Don't suffer the mistakes so much. And and I was absolutely the same. I that would be my advice. I heard that recently from Jason Kenny, um, and and I think if we can get that message to our younger athletes quicker, there's so much. I mean, it's a simple thing. There's so much more potential to to kind of explore there than than this traditional idea of just yeah beat yourself up really kind of it's the classic kind of perfectionist streak of, of athletes and never sat never being satisfied with with what you're doing always striving for more but it goes too far and i think it's one of the most common issues we see with athletes i certainly i see with the athletes i've been working with these last five years is that they beat themselves up they suffer and then the, the kind of emotional consequences of that makes them perform worse there's a little boost in motivation, like I used to feel, but there's also, it just comes with so much backlash and kind of inefficiency that it's not worth it. 
And from um, from a coaching point of view, there's a similar sort of concept that I, I would typically use with an athlete that I think probably is the start point upon which you could have this type of conversation. And that tends to be um, two, two frames of reference where somebody is super obsessive about the detail and their head is right in the in the game and they're worried about the pace or the the session or the the uh the, the shoes that they're wearing that they're not tight enough and they're getting right drawn into the the detail and your job as a coach and as a support member is to give them the bigger picture and mm. and remind them of of the goal the 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 um the hope the ambition the purpose that they're working to and sometimes that involves a case of you know let's inject a bit of love into <laughs> into this session and, and and enjoy it a bit more um and vice versa when someone's daydreaming thinking about um what might be uh, in terms of results that you make it tangible for them about you know let's get this focus on on this um we have a great example of this just recently of the Emma Raducanu just fairy tale and I think her performances at the US Open were they were an ode to to presence mindfulness and kind of process focus but also just joy of the endeavor just everything she spoke about afterwards was about how she just loved being there loved performing and used that to to just focus on the next shot I think that was just such a, you could see it radiating her face. She loved every bit of that. And that was about love for her sport. But, but uh, yeah, that struck me. Certainly. Yeah. And, and, um, and she could be uh, the accelerant to the movement, but it, it certainly recently it started with these quite pronounced moments of Naomi Saka, Tom Daly, Ben Stokes, who just said, I need to pause um, because as it is at the moment, uh, I need to recover. I need to reflect and look after myself. Um, so we've got sort of two two sides. One's one's thriving, and one's uh, full of joy and and at that verve. And somebody else who's saying, "I'm not quite there yet. I, I need to look after myself." That that spirit of well, you said you're beating yourself up too much. Well, I mean, even more than that, Emma Raducanu was that person just well, in Wimbledon. She was the one who had to pull out because she had to look after herself. And then the next event, <laughs> the very next event, she won. I mean, it's they go hand in hand, I think. this. I, but you're right. There are these stories which are clearly showing that the, the ship is turning. This culture is shifting. And... Um, and and I think there's great there's great things to come. I think there's still in there's still a frontier of kind of potential to to unleash in in lots of this stuff in the, the athlete thriving rather than the the traditional kind of grit your teeth work hard discipline approach that we've kind of had for the last 30 years so you mentioned about your own experience there beating yourself up and that the athletes tend to or certainly there's a it's common to hear people reflecting upon their careers and having this moment of realization of that doesn't need it shouldn't have been like that um it wasn't a healthy experience for me and if i had my time again i would do things differently do you think it's necessary for people to have that that depth of experience the the nadir um where people are down and they're suffering a bit before they climb back out um for example 
it's sometimes when you're trying to help athletes develop healthier routines, maybe say, let's say something as, as simple as tra- training volume uh, or variety in their training. And somebody says, no, nah, I'm just going to do whatever I, I've always done. The moment that you're most likely to be able to influence them is when they get injured or overtrained <laughs> so that they have that breaking moment when actually they realize it's not served them that well. Do you think it's essential for athletes to have experienced that moment of of going down one path and then realizing that there's another one? I, I think I've certainly worked with athletes who, who haven't suffered like that after losses who kind of just took had this kind of approach somewhat naturally that they didn't need to suffer but um, the vast majority like i said do suffer after defeats and mistakes especially at younger age before they have that zoomed out perspective that, that we tend to get with age but i wouldn't say I'm, i i don't think that it's possible or even necessary to switch that kind of attitude 180 degrees and have every young athlete just completely fine after losing i don't think that's that's re- realistic what i'm thinking is that those those athletes like me who really were hard on themselves if you can turn that dial that self-compassion dial up 10 or 20 percent that would take the edge off that kind of it wouldn't be then a week of suffering and, and going under a dark cloud it might be a few hours on the day and that's what I say to the athletes that I work with. Like, if you're if you're disappointed and really upset for a, for a few hours for the rest of the afternoon after a bad loss, that's fine. It's natural. If you're taking it into the next day, it's probably uh, it's not probably unhelpful, right? It's it's going to be affecting your relationships, your life, your kind of your training. Maybe you'll be turning up to training the next time in a different mood. So so it's just about degree, I think, um, and a certain amount of disappointment after you failed to live up to your best or failed to do what you were hoping to do is, is perfectly fine. Um, it just shouldn't be at that extreme level of, of what, what I experienced and what so many athletes have experienced of, of kind of close to you know, mini depression every time you, you lose or make a mistake. There were two, two parts in the book that, that sprung out and the, or certainly I know that, but what I know of tap that sprung out that, that made me think. Okay, this is this is possible without that disturbance in the force. That that sense of um, of I'm really struggling now because of the way I've approached the situation. Um, one was the second arrow. Mm-hmm. So that was this philosophy and idea that the first arrow that you shoot is the the intent and the effort, and the second is the reflection on that, which I thought was was beautiful. But to, but also to as a super tool for people to think about uh, effectively when they're in in the heat of the emotion of a situation or a failure or a mistake to think I haven't had my second arrow yet I thought that was that was lovely um, and the second was mentoring where people can live an experience through somebody else's life and eyes um, and so I know that's a really strong part of the true athlete project around mentoring which is i think has been so devoid over the years coach athlete relationship is one thing but having a mentor or somebody to reflect with who who's just one step further along the journey that they can relate to a little bit more that there's a sense of vicarious association um so those were two that i just thought that that could help somebody grow and develop without necessarily them um struggling 
Yeah, well, the the mentoring program, so my role at the Triathlon Project is Director of Mentoring. And it's been one of the great joys of my life is to, to see this program kind of build up and grow over the last five years. We we started with one pilot relationship in 2016 and then grew to seven and 17. And we're now on 34 pairs of, of kind of elite athletes working with younger, ambitious, committed athletes. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just, we've seen just an, the immense power inherent in the mentoring process. And we bring a curriculum, which is kind of similar to what I described in the book, our philosophy, a curriculum of modules and topics and exercises to the process. But just like you point out, just having a, a supportive, neutral person there to kind of listen and, and share ideas with for a younger athlete, it's just an absolute kind of golden experience and we talk about it being transformative but it really is the kind of feedback we get what we hear from mentees and mentors equally is just how much they've grown and developed through a, this year they, they work in a quite an intense year of mentoring together and there's it's like it's unlike any in to a degree of unlike, unlike any other program that i hear about and kind of developmental leadership development courses like that there's just nothing quite like it than the these two people building a strong relationship and helping each other or certainly mental guiding the mentee through kind of through that year together um so it's there's just such immense power and i i think we see there's a lot there's a lot of interest coming all the time in kind of from all angles of creating more mentoring programs people are realizing it and i think we'll see a, a big a big boom in, in mentoring we're, we're really at the at the forefront of it because we've built this thing which is so we feel is so special it's, it's our flagship program now hmm. i'm wondering who who isn't this for the, the the book the content of the book this somewhat um spiritual way of living and being as a as a sports person or or beyond um who who wouldn't this be useful for well i would say it would be useful for everybody but it's not for just like our mentors on our mentoring program it's not for the people who are who are closed off to thinking about things differently. So our mentors are, they're all kind of have experience with elite level sport, but they're not all kind of multi-Olympian medal winners. We take on people who are, who are committed to, to creating a more compassionate culture of sport and are open to, to thinking about things differently because not everyone comes to us entirely aligned with our, 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 our whole philosophy. So, we attract those people who are open and kind of are really curious about how things can be done differently. And if you're, if you're somebody from a very traditional kind of background in sport and you just, you're just in it to, yeah, for that kind of grit your teeth, work hard, mental toughness point of view, then, I mean, you're not going to be picking up the book or, or applying to the mentoring program, but it's also, it's not, not for those people because it just won't make any, any headway. If it, if they could, if they could just get a foot in the door, then I think it'd be really useful. Um, and some of the feedback that I've had from about the book is that it's that it's very logically built up. It's a it kind of follows an argument that is very difficult to argue against. You can disagree with some of the premises, but it's 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 not 
yeah, that it, that it has a logic behind it. And that's that's what we, we're seeing in all of this, that people can can take issue with, with some of the terms like love in sport and gratitude and embracing vulnerability. They seem like anathema to performance sport, elite sport. But, but actually when you have the conversations and go a bit deeper and you explain why it is, why self-compassion, love for your opponents, how can that possibly help you? Embracing vulnerability. When you really dig into it with somebody who, who shows a bit of resistance, the resistance kind of filters away eventually. And you just realize that it, that it might be a difference in language or kind of a different understanding of the, the term itself. But, but, but the idea behind it, of why it can help and why it's important, that, that comes through eventually. But it takes some, it takes some discu- discussion, really. It takes some deeper conversation. Yeah, I can I see that in the, your reference point for curiosity, um, where you've put there a, they are a scholar of their sport, exploring the context in which they operate. And I can certainly think of people who just don't really care. They're not really interested. Um, they're passengers as opposed to crew. Um, and thinking about where they're going, they're more interested about um, just, just sort of getting their head down. Um, and so, and that and that point, that's a good one because that, this is. Another point I make in there is that you can make it to the top of your sport without many of these kind of elements. You can be Olympic champion without any curiosity or knowledge of the context, your history of your sport. And and lots of those other kind of the virtues and the the elements of the tree. I think you can you can get to the very top of the sport with very few of those. But you'll more likely get there and realize that the the journey that that it's all been meaningless or you you still don't feel fulfilled. And if you can add that element of curiosity. Those people who do have that knowledge of the context and uh, are aware of the people that came before them, they, if they can get to the top or whether, however they finish in their sport, they'll just have more of that sense of this was worth it. This was a journey I appreciated and that I see value in. Yeah, I have a, I have a sense that there's, there's fulfilment for everybody. It could be 1%. It could be 100% that somebody could be a little bit more fulfilled as opposed to that they're going to work on this as um, as a program or a project that means that, that this is a way of life. Equally, there's a chance for people to just take the edge off, as you said, you know, before of making it just feel a little bit better, a little bit more um, something they can cope with. And and how would people get started Um I suppose there's two prongs to that question. How would people get started with the True Athlete Project? But if they weren't involved in that, where would you recommend that they they start? Besides reading the book, that's just too crass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we I mean, we have various programs in the True Athlete Project aimed at athletes and coaches. So workshops, and we're developing an online course for athletes and then coaches. Actually, um, we work with NGBs, kind of full organisation packages. We do a, an online mindfulness class for athletes. Um, and I, so there, there's various options if you, people want to check out the website for getting involved. Our mentoring program, if you're a retired or current elite athlete, we'd love to, we'd, uh, we're taking applications right now, actually. This is September for, for our next cohort. Any younger 50, athlete age 15 to 24 can apply to, to be a mentee and get mentored by an amazing elite mentor um and if you're just interested in kind of separately on your own on your own time of, of starting this process 
we mindfulness sits at the heart of all of our programming in tap so we have this kind of approach that traditionally you would it's in sport you kind of do all your training to get better as an athlete in the gym in the sound in the, the hall wherever you are on the court over here and then now more recently that you kind of come and you do a workshop on to to improve your well-being or your mental health you have a talk from a psychologist over here and actually what we're saying is that these things they can come in the same package they can be we could create athlete development pathways which both improve your performance and make you the best athlete and help you thrive in life and in sport and mindfulness is really it kind of it sums that up it's, a, it's the best example of that in practice so the same same practice of developing mindfulness kind of is both it can help for emotional control and focus concentration keeping equanimity in in the light of pressure but it also has these incredible kind of mental health and well-being effects and it's the same it's the same very same practice so it i mean it has links to kind of understanding your your place in the world and your your the sense of meaning you get from it so it, it goes a bit deeper so for those who who also get that sense that in sport things are there could be more that they could be they could get more from it than just the win or loss at the end of the day or um or their performance improvements i would i would point towards mindfulness as a as a starting place it's also where i started is kind of my philosophical journey in this was as an athlete recommended by my sister to read a book about about mindfulness and then started my practice at my early to mid 20s and and have continued and um it just it branches out into all these other other areas about compassion and and love and and vulnerability and gratitude but it really it sits at the heart of so much of this that it's a great place to start mm. lovely i mean it's um it certainly rings true to my own experience of supporting athletes that the the moments after watching uh, athletes win olympic gold medal um and the incremental rapid intensifying uh atmosphere that they encroached as we got closer and closer to that and the further of the families and the excitement and then the result and then they got the medals and then i got on a bus and then i thought what was that all about <laughs> <laughs> and it i suppose it, it is just a moment where i probably would have loved to have read that book there in that summer <laughs> And um, it's such a valuable piece of of thinking that uh, I think he's creating this real momentum uh, for us to at least have the option to to explore and be curious about a different way of of being. So um, thank you so much for writing it. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you for for those words, Steve. That's that's lovely to hear. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Lawrence. Do have a look at the link in the show notes for the book and have a look at the website, thetrueathleteproject.org and Lawrence's personal website, lawrencehousted.com. He's also on Twitter at Lawrence Halstead. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and the team at support underscore champs on LinkedIn and Instagram. Have a look up Sporting Champion. We're also developing new content on YouTube. So have a look in the show notes at the YouTube link where you can find some new guides about how you can develop practical ways to improve your performance. 